Hello, and welcome to the second ever crossover episode of Tech Swamp. That's right, our U.S. host plus our Greetings from Brussels host, Anna, have joined forces once again for a global competition deep dive. And for many reasons, this episode couldn't come at a better time. Uh, but maybe one of the most exciting reasons is that we're in the midst of planning our first ever global app con. We'll go into the details a little bit later, but consider this a prepisode ahead of our biggest app con yet. And speaking of prepisode, um, joining us to talk through the latest U.S. related competition legislation is original friend of the pod and senior director for public policy, Graham Default. And of course, we still have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Hello, Caitlin, what's up? No, just membership chilling. I hope so. And Anna, how are you? Good, how are you, Alex? I'm great, thanks. And I'm Alex. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we're excited to talk through the latest with the DMA, um, including its influence on an international policy scale, as well as the impact of our SME members in the EU, the US, and and beyond. But before that, we're going to talk tech history uh, and the top global tech headlines. April 30th, 1993, 29 years ago this month, and in celebration of World IP Day earlier this week, the World Wide Web was put in the public domain, making it an open and free platform for all. That's right. CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, uh, where Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, announced that it was putting the software in the public domain. In 1989, when Berners-Lee first invented the World Wide Web, it was originally developed to meet the demand for automated information sharing between scientists in universities and institutes around the world. But just a few short years later, with the software being moved into the public domain, the web became widespread and has been a critical piece of infrastructure in our everyday lives. And the rest is tech history. And now on to Bites and Brews. Anna, Brad, and Caitlin, tell me what is going on in the news. On April 23rd, the European institutions reached a political agreement on the Digital Services Act, or DSA for short, which is a new law that regulates how companies must handle illegal content, transparent advertising, and disinformation online. The new law includes a ban on advertising targeting minors on sensitive, based on sensitive data such as religion, sexual preference, health information, or political beliefs. The final text of the agreement is not publicly available yet, but according to the EU Council, micro and small enterprises with under 45 million monthly active users in the EU will be exempted from certain new obligations. Medium-sized enterprises are now exempt as well during the first 12 months following their loss of status as a micro or small enterprise. The European Commission also committed to financially assist SMEs in complying with the DSA, and it will have to review the effects of the DSA on SMEs within three years following its entry into force. As it stands, however, further technical talks will be necessary to finalize the details. The Parliament could adopt the text during its plenary session from July 4th to 7th, together with the Digital Markets Act, which we'll talk about later. Um, We very much welcome the additional safeguards for SMEs in the final agreement, and you can find our full statement in the show notes. The United States recently joined the Global Cross-Border Privacy Rules Forum, or Global CBPR Forum for short, which is an international digital privacy organization that also includes Canada, Japan, the Republic of Korea, the Philippines, Singapore, and Taiwan. 
The group aims to create an international certification system for privacy protocols that are based on the already existing ones in the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation and Privacy Re Recognition for Processors requirements. Goals of the International Forum include sharing data internationally for economic growth and public health research, as well as strengthening data protection and privacy regulations, and promoting interoperable solutions to different privacy laws and regulations across nations. This, of course, comes after years of Washington's failure to pass a federal privacy law, despite action at the state level. We'll keep you posted on the forum, as well as updates related to a federal privacy law in future episodes of TechSwap. The European Parliament's Internal Market and Consumer Protection Committee, short INCO, adopted its position on the Commission's proposal for a common charger directive last week. In the next two years, this directive would require device manufacturers to make their products compatible with one charging connection, a USB connector. Um, in order to eliminate the need for consumers to own multiple chargers for all their devices, including smartphones, tablets, cameras, and headphones. The committee adopted the proposal with a large majority and includes a number of important changes with regard to directives provisions on scope, bundling, and consumer information. In particular, the new proposal now includes low-voltage laptops, e-readers, keyboards, mice, screens, printers, portable navigation systems, digital radios, electronic toys, smartwatches, and other wearables. The committee also called on the commission to assess the market of wireless chargers by the end of 2026 and review the list of devices by the end of 2028. Once the parliament as a whole has approved this draft negotiating position at its May plenary session, members of the parliament will start talks with EU governments on the final shape of the legislation. Late last week, House Republicans sent a letter to Twitter's board of directors urging them to hold on to any and all records related to Elon Musk's offers to buy Twitter. And this comes on the heels of GOP concern over large social media platforms, particularly topics related to anti-conservative bias, including why and how platforms choose to censor users. It's important to mention that Elon Musk has publicly discussed his hopes for Twitter, including a vision for a less moderated platform. Now, Democrats on the Hill have raised concerns around disinformation and concerns over big tech, saying, quote, Musk purchasing Twitter is dangerous for our democracy. It is a reminder why we need a wealth tax and why we need some serious regulation for big tech. As of Monday afternoon, Twitter took the deal, but we'll keep you posted on all DC-related happenings as it relates to Elon Musk and Twitter in future episodes of TechSmart. And that's all for Bites and Brews. And as we mentioned earlier, we're bringing the whole team together for a global competition check-in. Uh, we're breaking down what legislative and regulatory action looks like and means for our small business members, how consumer privacy could be impacted, and what the future of the app economy looks like if certain platform safeguards are stripped. Uh, and who better to walk us through the U.S. side of things than Graham Dufault? Hey, Graham, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. It is always a delight to have you on the pod, OG FOTP. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, we have our greetings from Brussels co-host and uh, resident policy expert, Anna, for the latest on competition regulation out of the EU. So with that, let's just dive on in. Um, Anna, we saw some movement last month with the DMA. Can you talk a little bit about what happened back on March 25th and why we are following this so closely? 
Yeah, of course. Um, so on March 25th, what we saw happen was a political agreement between the EU institutions, so the Parliament and the Council. Um, and this happened as part of the trilogue negotiations, which is where the Commission, the Parliament, and the Council negotiate on the final text of a legislation. Um, and this came after the, permission, uh, the Commission initially proposed the DMA in December 2020. So it took about two-ish years to get here. Um, and so we are following this so closely because this is an unprecedented regulation in the, in the space of platforms. Um, and it will, it will significantly impact the way that these platforms can operate in Europe and probably beyond. Um, and that includes app stores, which affects our members. So in, in short, I would say the, the DMA will allow the European Commission to designate large online platforms as gatekeepers if they meet certain thresholds. And those thresholds are the number of users, their uh, market capitalization, turnover in the EU. And then once a company has been designated as a gatekeeper, the EU can subject them to certain obligations and prescribe things that the platform can and can't do. Um, the big novelty here is that so far, regulators have um, addressed such or alleged abuses of um, practices of platforms throughout antitrust proceedings. So there's been kind of a case-by-case -case basis where they've sued companies and then force them to pay certain fines. Um, and that that obviously is an ex post situation where it kicks in after an infringement happens. And the DMA is the EU's strategy to outlaw misconduct outright before bad behavior can happen. Um, and so they're doing that by defining this list of do's and don'ts. Um, the issue that we see here is that these obligations are very broad. Um, they're applied to all kinds of different um, business models not really taking into account the diversity in the platform um, economy and the actors that operate in it. And then that we think will, these provisions will that hurt the whole ecosystem overall um, because the provisions in the DMA are concerning and the, the practical implementation is new. Um, and the implementation is gonna be crucial because we don't know how it's going to work and we don't know how they're going to implement them. And the con main concern for us, obviously, is that it's going to hurt SMEs. Um, so I think some of the most concerning obligations to us, for example, is the use of choice screens. Um, so that would mean if you open your, uh, you, you open your phone and you want to choose an email app, now on your iPhone it would just be the mail app. Um, and then it would obligate Apple to make it possible that you see different choices for these screens. Um, but that would only list the main and the largest service providers for default apps and that could lock small app developers out of the market entirely because they don't have the resources to even get on this list of choice screens. Um, and then there's also broad obligations in the DMA for sideloading and enabling interoperability, um, which could unintentionally open the gate to malicious actors and put end users' data and safety at risk. Our members rely on the safety that the platform ecosystem um, provides and keeping bad actors out of this ecosystem is very important for our members to gain consumer trust so that they can operate on the same playing field as larger brands who already have um, consumer trust because of like name recognition. Um, and so to avoid any negative impact for smaller players in the market and prevent them from becoming hostage, um, hostages of litigation between larger players, um, we think that the European institutions should have a 
ongoing dialogue with stakeholders, not just gatekeepers, it should include everybody that is part of the platform economy, um, while they finalize the DMA's technical provisions and um, its implementation. And basically, the DMA shouldn't prevent SMEs from being able to innovate and grow, and we want them to be able to continue to thrive in a fair and competitive and safe app ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Graham, I'd like your take on this. You know, when you hear what Anna just described, what's your reaction? Like, how is this different or how is it similar to what we're seeing kind of coming out of Congress here in the U.S.? Yeah, there there are some similarities. I, I think that <clears throat> the DMA goes a little bit further than what we're seeing coming out of Congress. Um as Anna described, there are a set of ex-ante regulations as opposed to sort of an ex-post enforcement regime where you go after bad actors for violating the law after they do it. Um, whereas with this regula- regulatory regime, there's like a there's a bunch of things that the DMA proscribes. The really interesting that we're, thing that we're seeing with the bills in Congress that adopt some of what the DMA does. And, and we'll talk in more detail about what the what the bills in Congress do, but essentially they are a series of ex ante prohibitions. For example, there's a prohibition on a on a platform from restricting access to personal data, right? right. And you can see where that comes from. It's it's a it's a desire to limit what a platform can do to limit access to data that might be useful for another company as it's coming up with a competitive alternative. Um, what we what we notice with that ex-ante prohibition on the restrictive measure is that it sort of forces companies into this ex-post approach to cybersecurity. So in other words, if you can't remove an app <clears throat> for any reason, uh, unless you meet a bu- one of these really narrow um, exceptions and affirmative defenses, then the platform is in the position of waiting until a bad actor does a bunch of bad things on the platform, and then they get to maybe remove the app. Uh, It's a really interesting dynamic. It's a really interesting effect that we're noticing um, with a, a prohibition like that. One thing to note about about Europe, though, is that they have an overarching privacy framework. The General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, is a regulation adopted by you know, the European Commission that applies across all of its member states. Uh, it is true that the member states have their own enforcement authority and their own interpretations of GDPR that they can, that they can adopt. Um, but what is what is different there here in here in the United States versus versus Europe is that the U.S. doesn't have an overarching privacy law that applies across all states, um, and so the context in which a, a, a regulatory regime like DMA is being contemplated, and like the bills in Congress that are being contemplated, it's not exactly the same. Where you know where DMA requires that platforms provide access to data, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Europe has the benefit of having 
a bunch of reg- a bunch of privacy requirements as well that companies that are receiving that data must adhere to. Right. That's not the case in, in the U.S. And in the U.S. instead, what you've seen is uh, states trying to adopt their own privacy regimes that are sort of um, done a little bit unevenly. Um, there are a couple of models that are emerging. Uh, you know, uh, Virginia established a privacy law that Colorado then sort of followed and then Utah uh, adopted sort of an echo of it. And so there is a there is sort of an effort to have a, a uniform approach to, to state legislation on, on privacy, but that's certainly not all of the United States. It's only a few states, California, Virginia, Colorado, and Utah. And uh, they're not doing it all the same way. And so we don't have the benefit of a privacy law protecting everybody uh, as a backdrop to ideas like DMA or the bills in Congress that we're seeing that would mandate access to data um, and therefore create new privacy and security risks. Yeah, absolutely. And and I kind of want to turn back to Anna to follow up a little bit, uh, Graham, on what you just mentioned. Um, you know, I think when you bring up GDPR, that's kind of an example of sort of the EU kind of setting the bar for policy at a global level, especially when it comes to our industry and the app economy and really like regulating big tech. And so some critics have mentioned that the EU's ambition to kind of establish itself as the world's regulatory trendsetter for big tech um, outside of China um, essentially gives us a, a like a disproportionate leadership role um, in in digital policymaking. And so, um, Anna, could you talk a little bit about the role the EU has taken and why, you know, perhaps, you know, that leadership has ruffled so many feathers. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I think we've seen the EU trying to rewrite the digital and tech policy rulebook over the last decade, starting with um, the GDPR in 2012 and con- uh, continuing with initiatives like the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, the Data Act, the Artificial Intelligence Act. There's a lot that's still going on. Um, and that will be coming out like this year and in the next couple of years. So they're re- they're basically updating every tech policy initiative or drafting new initiatives that the EU has ever had um, for this kind of new era in the digital world that we now live in. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because it also seems like the process has sped up. Um, GDPR took six years from proposal um, to provisions becoming applicable. The DMA is set to be ready and enforceable in only three years, which is very fast pace for the EU. Um, but I think, I, I don't know if I would say that the EU has a disproportionate role in digital policy making. It is, it's a huge and very important market, especially to internet companies. Consumers there, you know, are wealthy. They have gr- good internet um, access. So companies don't really have a choice other than following the EU's rules because they apply in its 27 member states and for the 445 million people who live there. So it's hard to pass up. Um, and depending on the company's size and resources, it's sometimes easier for them to just adapt their whole process um, and operations to the EU law and questions so they follow the EU rules in any jurisdiction that they operate in. And this is, um, this is also the case because the EU rules often, like you said, set a higher bar. They're very strict. So, for example, if a company complies with GDPR, they're pretty much guaranteed to comply with most other privacy laws. Um, so 
Yeah, the EU they have been ahead of the U.S. in internet regulation, if you want to call it ahead, or if it's just, it's just really been very different. Um, and that's interesting because most tech giants are U.S. companies, and I think that's where the whole ruffling of feathers comes in, because the EU is writing the rules that these companies have to comply with. Um, and I would say there's multiple reasons for that. Um, first, EU leaders realized that even if the EU has the technology or know-how, um, they have not managed to transform this knowledge into you know, numerous successful what they call digital champions, um, at least not at the level um, of what's happening in the US. Like Europe doesn't have companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, you know, just doesn't exist. Um, and this is partly due to the fragmented um, digital European market with 27 member states, and they all have their own you know, normative traditions, laws, culture, languages, um, which is, for example, um, important in the context of content moderation. Um, and having the harmonized single market and also a um, harmonized digital single market in the EU became a massive priority um, for the European institutions in the last, um, I want to say, 15, 10 to 15 years. Um, and that's also provided an opportunity for the EU leaders to reflect on the role that the EU um, wants to play in tech regulation and um, the, the digital economy. And so, you know, there's also an angle for the first mover advantage. Whoever does it first gets to write the rules, setting the right. rule at a regional level and then, you know, becomes the global standard, which is what the EU has done before. And that has some advantage that they can turn into leverage to force other groups into embracing their rules, even um, when that might be at odds um, with domestic agendas. And regulating big tech, um, irrespective of where they come from, allows the EU to play a role on the international stage. And it's an, it's an expression of their geopolitical power um, in a world where the EU wants to, you know, remain a relevant player in between the U.S. and the and China, so so that I think is like the strategic angle of this. Um, and then, if we want to talk about competition more specifically and the the Digital Markets Act, like I said earlier, the EU has tried to crack down on big platforms for years. Um, they they've had more success charging companies like Google and Facebook with abusive behaviors um, and antitrust cases and forcing them to pay fines. Um, and that, I think, is because most of the EU's digital infrastructure is still in the hands of several foreign digital companies, and that's given rise to this concept of digital sovereignty in Europe, um, which means the EU's efforts to scale up its um, tech capacity, um, tech businesses as a strategic resource, um, and also as a strategic priority for the European Commission, um, and setting the rules in tech as one way they're trying to achieve um, digital sovereignty in the EU. And as Graham, you know, has touched on with privacy laws, um, the EU's laws have inspired and influenced policy conversations in the US. But it's interesting that although we always have this notion of what happens in the EU happens in the US, um, and the EU now has a sweeping privacy law, that hasn't led to any notable federal action here. Um, but I guess it remains to be seen if that's different in the competition context with um, the DMA as it's influencing U.S. legislation like the Open App Markets Act, um, although the DMA has a much broader um, scope currently. But yeah, it remains to be seen how the DMA ultimately impacts um, any potential U.S. legislation. Totally. Um, 
I completely agree. And now that we've sort of gotten into some of that, like meat and potatoes from the DMA, um, Graham, I want to turn back to you. Um, let's talk about what we're seeing on the Hill a little bit more in depth. Um, as we're heading into our sort of first ever global competition, AppCon next month, um, I do want to use this as like a prepisode for our entire membership. So what are the competition bills in the U.S. looking like right now? Um, can you give us maybe like an overview of some of the details and why these bills matter so much for small businesses in the app? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that Anna gave us a little bit of backdrop on what's, what's going on in Europe because there's some similar dynamics, I think, at play in the U.S. So there are a couple of bills that we're tracking right now. Um, number one is S2992 the American Innovation and Choice Act and the House version of it, which is H.R. 3816. And then um, another bill called the Open App Markets Act, which is uh, S2710. And I think it's H.R. 7030 uh, on the House side. So a very re recent reintroduction of the bill. Uh, what what the, the first one I mentioned, let's, let's just stick with the S numbers, S2992 is sort of the overarching, uh, I guess it's the American version of the DMA. So it's a bill that uh, at a high level prohibits a, a set of companies that are defined as uh, platforms from <clears throat> preferencing their own services on their platform on the one hand, and then also from uh, limiting access to the platform uh, for, for other potential competitors to the offerings that a platform company might have. So for example, uh, on the Apple platform, you got Apple Music, you know, the, the bill is designed to prevent Apple from preferencing Apple, Apple Music over Spotify, the big uh, competitor on, on music services. So that's the overarching purpose. But in order to make the bills sort of uh, robust and really have teeth, there are a bunch of prohibitions, you know, down the line in the bills that get into a little bit of the details of what uh, platforms are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. So um, <clears throat> one of the big prohibitions in the couple of prohibitions that's really tough to work with in S2992 is basically a prohibition on the platform from restricting access to the platform and a prohibition on the on the platform from restricting access to personal data um, that a user generates on the platform. And so it's sort of a twin couple of prohibitions on restricting access to, you know, to the, in the App Store context to the App Store and then a, a, a prohibition on the platform restricting access to personal data uh, that's created by a user you know, that buys something on, on the app store. What that fundamentally does is that it takes away the enforcement mechanism that a, that an app store has an app store that's owned by, uh, by the platform to remove somebody, uh, an app for either stealing somebody's data or stealing content. We have a lot of, unfortunately instances where, you know, you have copycat apps, um, Back in February and January, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted on S2992, uh, and then in a, in a later in a later uh, vote, voted on S2710. In, in in both of those votes, 
you had a number of senators that are members of that the Judiciary Committee sort of raise concerns about what would be the privacy and security implications of with these bills uh, prohibiting the management function of the app stores. And, you know, the question was raised by senators from both Democrat and Republican parties. You know, what what are we doing in these bills to make sure that this prohibition doesn't accidentally uh, create new security, new privacy risks in a way that, you know, we're, we're not really being careful about how we're how we're doing it. Um, and so as part of that uh, process, uh, the, the managers of the bill, the sponsors of the bill introduced what they call managers amendments uh, at the hearing where, where the sponsors of the bill draft the amendment and basically replace the text of, of the bill with, with something new. And in those um, uh, in in those managers' amendments for for both bills, you know there were sort of smallish attempts to uh, try and enable a platform to remove an app for a privacy issue or remove an app for a security issue. The problem with what they did is that all 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 they did in effect was add some content to. Uh, the available affirmative defense. And it's a, a little bit of a wonky legal term, you know, an affirmative defense, but it matters a lot when it comes to what companies are allowed to and what they're not allowed to do. So basically, uh, the way the bill operates is that as a blanket rule, uh, a, a, uh, a platform is barred from removing an app uh, if, if doing so would, quote unquote, harm competition on the platform. Um, of course, harming competition on the platform might include removing an app so that you have a sort of a circular issue there and not much of a threshold question of whether or not it's going to harm competition. Um, that's why in a usual antitrust analysis, you figure out if you're going to harm competition and, and then as you're harmed, a competition hurts consumers. Uh, so they kind of shortcut and say, no, this isn't really about the consumer. This is really just about, you know, competitors being able to sue for, for this conduct. Um, and so once you get to that point and you say any removal is, is illegal, uh, the affirmative defense says, okay, if you are sued for removing the app, then you can offer as an affirmative defense to rebut the presumption that you're liable. And that what you did is against the law. Uh, if you can show, and this is this is in 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 both bills, if it was non-pretextual, um, if it uh, did, if it uh, if there's no uh, more tailored way of doing it, uh, and if there's a less discriminatory way of removing the app or of whatever privacy control is in place that restricts access to data. Um, <clears throat> That is an extremely high bar, right? If yeah. you're, if the, right, because the, the presumption is again, removing the app is illegal. Um, and so it, the enforcement provision is if you are found liable, you will, you will have to pay 15% of your revenue for the duration that whatever the practices was in place. Think about what the incentives are there. You're not going to rely on a on an affirmative defense to suggest that removing an app might be legal. You're just not going to do it. 
Um, so that's, that's sort of the problem that it creates it, uh, in the app store context. Again, like one of the bills S2992 is supposed to apply to any major digital platform. So it applies to, it would apply to Amazon. It would, it would apply to Google search. Um, it would apply to, um, uh, uh, fa- Facebook as a, as a social media platform. So these are really different business models and business types. Um, but in the, in the app store context, the way it would apply is effectively that it would require um, app store operating system combinations to allow uh, side loaded, what they call side loaded um, software onto their platforms. And the presumption is that they wouldn't be able to remove any of it from your device. Um, again, as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, in order to overcome that uh, uh, presumption with an affirmative defense, there has to be a lot of evidence that what the whatever app it is, it, you know, it is doing is harmful, which means they have to the, the platform would have to let a lot of people get defrauded or um, or experience other kinds of harms, again, that you can show evidence for in order to justify removing the app, which is not a very good approach in cybersecurity, right? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> you want to be a little bit more proactive than, I'm going to wait till you hurt a lot of people, and then I'm going to maybe take a step to remove you. That's that's not where you know a, a lot of folks that are selling on the app stores want the app stores to be. They probably don't want an environment where that is sort of the norm is uh, sort of uh, stub apps and Trojan horses and things like that, that aren't, you know, the platform can't remove. Um, it makes it a pretty tough environment to sell in. Um, and that instead, you know, to, to honest point where uh, you're talking about what a, what a federal government's interest is in international uh, discussions and in international trade. Uh, if the, if the U S wants to establish for itself, some leverage and some leadership in regulation, uh, starting with privacy is a is a better route and would help the U.S. establish more of a leadership role in tech regulation. Um, but it would also sort of enhance the value of all the different distribution methods that our member companies use to reach people um, instead of taking this other approach, which would actually sort of tear down uh, from from my perspective, sort of tear down the the value of one of the distribution methods, i.e., the you know the app store. So that's uh, a little concerning. bit of depth on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, and and could totally really, you know, even just from like a consumer trust perspective, have a huge impact um, on our membership. Yeah. Um, which is obviously a big part of why we're talking about this and sort of the impetus for this um, global app con that we're about to do. Um, and so on, I, I want to go back to you briefly. Um, you know, you were sort of talking about the way that some EU regulation inspires action in the U.S. Um, and, and obviously you gave an example. And, and now that you've heard Graham sort of describing the bills uh, in more detail that are here in the U.S., are there other similarities that you're seeing between the EU and the U.S. sort of in this global competition push? Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing um, generally more scrutiny of big tech on both sides of the Atlantic, and the bills that Graham described and the DMA have similar structures um, as they both, or some of them include the the lists of prohibited behaviors. Um, I think 
the the imposition of these obligations both on like big tech like Apple and Google, which is the app stores that we care about, um, they there's some amount of overlap, like the big topics are the same. So for example, they both have obligations on like like restricting of pricing or communications of business users with consumers, refraining from using non-public information um, of businesses to compete with them, um, side loading and interoperability, um, unequal treatment of apps through like self-preferencing. So those are all like the big topics I think that all of these bills touch on, but the, the DMA still um, remains much broader um, than for example, the Open App Markets Act because it doesn't just cover app stores. Um, it basically regulates any company that um, provides a core platform service, which includes anything that is an online intermediation service. So that can be marketplaces, app stores, online search engines, online social networking services, video sharing platforms, um, interpersonal communication services, operating systems, <laughs> cloud computing services, and advertising. So that is a lot of different um, business models that are covered under the DMA, um, who all of these could become gatekeepers if they meet the specified thresholds. So, um, and because it's so much broader, the DMA obviously um, has some more obligations that aren't covered in any of these bills that are currently under debate in the US. Um, but since it was proposed in 2020, the DMA has come a long way. And I think we've advocated successfully for more safeguards for small businesses specifically. Um, so for example, um, when it comes to provisions that um, require side loading and interoperability, the European institutions have now included some um, caveats for cybersecurity. So they, um, they allow a gatekeeper to restrict um, side loading and interoperability requirements if the integrity of the hardware or the operating system is at stake here. So for us, this is important as our members, you know, need a secure and uh, trustworthy app ecosystem to thrive. And then the final text also mandates these choice screens that I talked about earlier only for search engines, virtual assistants, and web browsers, but not for other software applications um, and other services. So if we don't like choice screens, our efforts have paid off to ensure that these aren't applied to all defaults at least. <laughs> and so the, the institutions have also um, included um, a further safeguard to allow gatekeepers to restrict the uninstallation of applications that are essential to the functioning of the operating system. So you can't uninstall just every app that is on your smartphone. Um, and the European Commission can also suspend obligations, which is it's pretty important. Um, because they can now um, consider the impact of the obligation um, on the economic viability of the gatekeeper, as well as third parties, which in particular um, is important for SMEs, because then they can just, you know, suspend the obligation if it's not working out. Um, however, the commission can't add any new obligations, which is good, because if they could just add new obligations, like, all the time, that would be probably the cause for a lot of unintentional consequences, since no um, in-depth market investigations were required for the commission to be able to do this. Um, I think one thing that we're still trying to work out here is that we would like the commission to provide for more opportunities for third parties to be involved in um, them specifying the framework and have a broader regulatory dialogue with every stakeholder, not just the gatekeepers, on how these um, obligations are being applied. 
and then I think before I go on too much longer, um, the the last thing that regulators threw in kind of last minute, which remains to be seen how that works, is an interoperability obligation for messaging services. And um, that is pretty broad and it seems to go beyond ancillary services. So we'll see how gatekeepers can ensure that their hardware and software features that are used to provide its own services are interoperable with those of third parties and how they can keep them secure. Um, and the risk for SMEs to become gatekeepers remains pretty limited, but it's not zero. Um, and this is just the basics of the DMA, yeah. but there's a lot more. Um, it's very complex, but I think that would require a whole episode on its own to dive into everything that's in it. Yeah. So I'll stop yeah. here. <laughs> totally. These are incredibly complex, um, not only the DMA, but also sort of what's happening here in the U.S. And so my last question for both of you, it's a joint joint question. Um, what can we expect moving forward? You know, what's the path for the DMA? And then what happens sort of next on the Hill? So Anna, maybe if you want to briefly talk about DMA and then Graham will go to you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we have this political agreement. It still needs to be finalized at a technical level and all the lawyers and translators at the EU need to review this, but before it can be formally approved by the parliament and the council, because they need to translate it into all EU languages. And this can take some time to make sure that everything has the same meaning in each of the languages. Um, and then once this is complete, um, it'll be the text will be published in the official EU journal um, and then enter into force 20 days after. This could be as early as October 2022. And then six months after this entry into force, the rules would apply. Um, that would be March or April of 2023 if the projected timeline holds. Um, and then once it enters into uh, once it enters into force um, and the rules start applying, it'll take the commission probably another couple months to actually designate the first gatekeepers. And then once those are designated, it um, they have I think they can appeal yeah they can appeal um, the decision to be designated as a gatekeeper. And then they also have um, six months to ensure compliance with the prohibitions and obligations. But by the second half of 2023 slash beginning of 2024, depending on how quick this all goes over, um, gatekeepers will need to be fully compliant with the DMA. So like I said, for the EU, this is super quick. Yeah, definitely. Um, Graham, what about the U.S.? So the two bills that we talked about, the Open Net Markets Act and the um, American Innovation and Choice Act, were both voted out of committee. So Open App Markets Act got an enviable vote of 20 to 2 out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, S2992 got a vote of 16 to 6. So I noted that earlier there was a lot of discussion during the, the vote about all of the concerns that members of that committee have. Um, most of the members that experienced very serious, that sorry, that expressed very serious concerns with the bills voted for them nonetheless. Uh, in committee and said, look, I'm voting for this in committee, but you can't count on my vote when it goes to the floor necessarily, because I want to see some changes that actually deal with privacy and security, the concerns that, you know, the, the biggest concerns that we have. And that's remarkable, right? Um, if you have really serious concerns, generally, you're going to vote against something and not and not for it in, in committee. So why why is that? That goes to why it's so important for app association members to speak up. Members of the Senate Judiciary Committee and off the Senate Judiciary Committee 
and in Congress generally feel immense pressure right now to take on, quote unquote, big tech. And that pressure is creating sort of an environment where there are a bunch of options, right? There are a bunch of menu of options of bills that big tech doesn't like. Uh, these are a couple that just so happen to be available. Right. Uh, you know, in the case of the Open App Markets Act, that this bill was introduced um, late last year for the first time ever. And it would be essentially a government takeover of the major app stores. Think about how serious a, a change that would be um, for something that is a very new idea. And so what our message has to be is, Let's not completely reshape the app stores, especially, you know, in a way that the biggest sellers in the app stores want you to reshape the app stores, Congress. Uh, take into account our views as well and what the impacts are going to be on uh, smaller companies that are selling products and services across the board and that have a, a that should be viewed as having an equal stake um, and slow down and let's think about what the what the consequences are going to be uh, of something like what you're considering. So um, I think that because the, the bills went out of committee with uh, healthy votes, uh, that there is a possibility that uh, the bills could see a vote on the Senate floor uh, in late May. And that's what we've been told is the, the target actually, you know, early to mid May is what they're hoping for. But um, in any case, by Memorial Day. And the, the idea is that both of the bills, the Open App Markets and American Innovation Choice Act, would, would get uh, voted on together, be pushed together and voted on. Um, I've heard that they're going to try and put another sort of antitrust-related bill on there, uh, dealing with the ability of news outlets to, to negotiate together for, for terms on advertising. Um, that bill hasn't gone through committee yet. So I believe, it, you know, if that is true, that they're going to wait for that bill to go through, uh, then that bill has to be marked up and that'll probably be next week. And so as a result, I think the earliest we'd see a floor vote on these bills is mid, uh, mid to late May, um, which does give us a little bit of time <laughs> to, to advocate. Um, and in any case, if the Senate moves, then the House will have to do that. Uh, two. And so then we'll turn our attention to the house. So that's, that's about where we are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's why, um, it's why we have selected sort of this timing for our, um, global app con as well. Um, so more news to come to all of you, uh, about that. And of course, if you ever have any questions about how to get involved in app con, don't hesitate to reach out, um, to the membership team here at the app association. Um, so, I guess, you know, there's a lot to digest here. We're going to have a lot of stuff for you guys in our show notes. Um, so definitely check back and, and you'll hear from us again. Uh, I pretty much can promise. Um, so Graham, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a good one. And Anna, of course, thank you for lending your policy expertise um, and co-hosting expertise once again. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Happy to do it. <laughs> Thanks all. And now it's time for Random Identifier. Brad, you're up first. What do you got? Of course. This month we're going to have to go to our friends up north in Canada to get another band that was discovered at uh, our recent trek down to Austin for South by Southwest. And that is 
Art Deco, which is actually the name of the the front man. He is anonymous aside from that stage name. And uh, they do glam rock. Um, not really in my wheelhouse generally, but uh, we saw the show at inappropriate probably 2.30 a.m. Um, and it, it just hit right at the time, and it continues <laughs> to hit right. I love that. Yeah, uh, and he like for most performances dresses with a bob wig and makeup and it's the whole nine yards for sure i actually recently i've been watching a lot of the nba games and one of the commercials uses one of their songs it's like the craziest thing that one of these random bands i found is in a like very very corporate commercial so i guess good for them yeah i love that i love when interests collide like that (laughs) that's right one-stop shop Exactly. Paid when exactly. artists are paid for their work. Yeah, very important. What a concept. <laughs> um, Caitlin, what about you? What do you have for us this month? Um, well, speaking of artists paying for work, <laughs> Elon Musk bought Twitter. <laughs> JK, um, but no, he did. Um, and I just like, I'm going to use this as an opportunity just to really quickly talk some ish um, about. Elon, just because I feel like, you know, generally the public has been misinformed about Elon Musk because he he has not innovated the things that he claims to have innovated. He just like bought the companies and then claims to have created the technology, traps people with NDAs so that they can't dispute it. Um, As someone on TikTok put it best, he is a charlatan. Um, And I fully believe that. So I think that this move is, is not a good one. And I am not excited for his his fans to be terrorizing the interwebs once more (laughs) i think that's a fair i think that's a fair moment during this random identifier and i'm glad that you had it thank you thank you for giving me the space to to have this absolutely i think my personal feelings about elon musk are also well documented on this podcast so (laughs) i don't necessarily need to add Um, and so with that, Anna, we now go to you. What do you have for us this month? I'm trying to relate this to Caitlin's, but I'm not <laughs> sure if it'll succeed. I'm currently reading this book about a future you know that Elon might like, because it's about Uh-oh. like kids having artificial friends, like there's like AI friends. Oh gosh. Yeah, it's very good, but it's very like haunting, and I feel like if it had been like 2020, I wouldn't want to read this because we were like deeper in the pandemic. Now I'm like more comfortable returning to dystopian books. <laughs> sure, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, it's all, it's, yeah, it's like about AI and how like the AI learns about the world around her and like how she discovers like feelings and stuff and what they mean to humans. Like it's very interesting. It's a very good book. It's called Claire and the Sun. Um, it's by Ooh. Kuzao Ishiguro, I think. Um, and yeah, if you're in the mood for a dystopian novel, highly recommend. <laughs> That's that's great. Um, that sounds great. I I think that's one I would definitely probably read. Yeah. But agree, like now, not yeah. a year or two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, my random identifier is completely different. Um, I'm going to talk about food, specifically fish tacos. Oh hell um, yeah! <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So my um my parents just moved to Galveston, Texas, which is a little island, uh, kind of off the Gulf. Um or on the Gulf, I guess, um, just um, sort of right near Houston. So it's about an hour outside of Houston. Um, and uh, um, so my 
parents are foodies they've been like trying to figure out food that's now sort of directly in their backyard and they discovered this place in Galveston um, and it's called Fish Company Taco um, and their deal is that they're um, sort of farm and golf to table they're only open like Thursday through the weekend basically um, they only do fish and shrimp tacos from the Gulf um, and then like a couple specials so, like they make like very randomly like a very delicious bagel with house smoked salmon and mm. things like that mm. um, or you know like depending on what fish comes in chef will like create um, like a special entree or something but their like bread and butter is that they basically have like four or five um, styles of taco and then you can pick if you want them with um, shrimp or fish and you can get the shrimp or fish um, fried or grilled and um, my personal favorite um, at the moment is one that they call the Dirty South, which has pimento cheese. Um, yes. It has, right? So good. Immediately, it has, yes. Yeah, <laughs> it has um, pimento cheese and like a, like a large taco-sized chip that kind of goes in as your crunch. Mm. Um, whoa, whoa. And then like this super delicious sauce. And it's so freaking good with the fried... Um, I've had it with both the fried shrimp and the fried fish, and both are delicious. There's also like a Korean taco style, like a Vietnamese taco style. Um, there's, oh my God, they're like all so good. And anyway, my point is go to Galveston, go to Fish Company Taco, enjoy it. Um, go early because they stop serving once they run out of the fresh, the fresh fish that was delivered that day. Um, and, um, Gosh, it's so good. It, it's also a really cool story. Um, the chef is part of the like LGBTQ I plus like uh, world, um, and um, she's very open about it, which is also something that I think is not expected in um, Galveston, Texas, of all places. Um, anyway, uh, it's a great story. The food is incredible. Very cool chef. Um, always like to support small businesses. So highly recommend going over to Fish Company Taco. Um, in Galveston, Texas. And you can visit my parents while you're there because they're pretty cool. I was wondering where I should go for lunch today, so I think yeah. I figured that out. I think yep. I should just, just call Tom and he'll come pick you up at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, folks, that is it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search TechSwamp. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we'd love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. And that is all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to this global episode of TechSwamp. Everyone, say bye. 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 bye.